Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This morning we will study, continue studying our Lord's teaching on the great day of the Feast of Booths, recorded in John 8, all the way through the end of the chapter. This next section we'll look at over two weeks, and so we will begin this morning, but I'd like to begin by reading John 8, 21 to 30. John 8, 21 to 30. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing, my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, for he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Lord God, we pray that you would cause many to believe in Jesus through his word. We pray that you'd give us the faith to hear the warning, the dire warning that Jesus gives to these Jews in Jerusalem, these very religious people that they face the threat just as we do of dying in our sins i pray that you would help us to understand what that means that we would believe that jesus is um, he who he claims to be and by believing we have life in his name in jesus name amen i've titled this morning's message how not to die in your sins. Um, Three times in our passage this morning, we're just going to look at verses 21 to 25. Three times Jesus speaks plainly and clearly what must be hard truth to the Jews in Jerusalem. He's at a religious festival. These are very religious people. He's in the temple. He's not talking to fringe people. He's talking to people who likely took a journey from all over Israel to come to this feast and they've celebrated the feast and they're in the temple of God. They're in the true religion. And the Messiah stands among them and three times says to them, verse 21, you will die in your sin. Verse 24, you will die in your sins. And again in verse 24, you will die in your sins. This is the heart of the matter of what Christianity and our faith answers. This is the salvation that Jesus came to provide. Talking about sin, talking about judgment is not very popular today. It wasn't popular in many ages. And yet our Lord talked about it relentlessly. I'm going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis giving a 
talk at Cambridge College on the topic of how can we study during wartime, he addresses this. This is in the 1940s, the teaching of hell and judgment already being out of favor. How much more so now? C.S. Lewis writes this, spoke this actually. To the Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must not be that he fiddled while Rome was burning, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. He says, you must forgive me for this crude monosyllable. I know that many wiser and better Christians than I these days do not like to mention heaven and hell, even in a pulpit. I know too that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source. But then that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you that it's St. Paul. That is not true. The overwhelming teaching on this doctrine is dominical. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must sometimes overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. And C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. Sometimes they want to cast... Jesus in the New Testament is simply coming with an ethic of loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek and can't we be kind to each other? And then they try to present Paul as hijacking the faith about heaven and hell and eternity. No, 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 our Lord is abundantly clear. These people want a political deliverer. They want a political savior. They wanted to make him king. And he makes it clear after inviting them. There's both the invitation we've seen I'm the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the invitation. But the warning is equally clear here. He says to these people, unequivocally, without qualification, you will die in your sins. And that is the greatest threat facing man. The potential of global war sparking out of Ukraine pales in comparison to this. The threat of a, of a new and more virulent coronavirus is not the biggest concern you have. The threats of health, employment, marriage, none of these things hold a candle to the danger that faces every one of us of dying in our sins. And so I would suggest to you that we heed our Lord's warning, even if you're one who knows Christ, hear it again, understand what you've been saved from, and understand there can be no faithful preaching of the gospel that doesn't also pronounce this judgment. Both are present. Our Lord invites whoever, whoever believes in me. But he's inviting them to escape dying in their sins. That, that is the threat facing man, not low self-esteem, dying in your sins. So how do we not do that? Our Lord gives us the one exception, the one means of escaping that fate. So let's look at this passage in three points. Point number one, Jesus warns of his imminent departure. Jesus warns of his imminent departure. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, this is the second time he said something like this. If you look back in chapter 7, he says something very similar back in verses 33 and 34. Jesus said to them, I'll be with you a little longer. Where I'm going, I'm going to him who sent me. 
You will seek me. You will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And in both instances, they misunderstand him. There, they think he might be going off to teach the Greeks. And here, they think maybe he's going to kill himself. They don't heed his warning, but he is warning them. He's both inviting them and he is warning them. He is both a, a carrot and a stick. The gospel has good news and bad news. And Jesus is equally clear on both fronts. So let's look at his sober warning. His sober warning. He said to them again, I'm going away. So who's the them? Same them as we saw last week. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them. And I suggested to you that who Jesus is speaking to is the conglomerate of the people and the Pharisees. Here, I think they get the title, the Jews. That's how John's going to refer to them as they respond. Last week, we saw he was answering the challenge. How how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does anything good come from Galilee? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. And Jesus reminds him, Isaiah 9, I'm the light of the world. Whoever believes me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus speaks to them again. This is at the culminating day of the great feast, the great day, the last day of the Feast of Booths. Every able-bodied Israelite male has traveled all over the land, some from outside of the land to be here in the temple. And Jesus looks at them and warns them, I'm going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Let me combine this warning with the image he just used, that he's the light of the world. The whole picture of light is that you can see. You can see what's around you. You can see the dangers. And Jesus, as light, is warning of danger. It's as though you're driving in a car late at night on icy roads in a mountain pass, and you see coming ahead of you a sharp corner that if you don't turn precisely the right moment, you'll go over the cliff. And Jesus is warning them, the headlights are going to turn off shortly. The headlights are going to, you're going to be driving in the dark I'm the light of the world and I'm going away. He, he, turn to chapter 12. He says something very similar there as well. That's the meaning of the metaphor. That's the meaning of the warning. Jesus is providing the context. He's explaining reality. And the reality they're all facing is that they are imminently about to stand before God in their sin. Chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be sons of light. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Then he warns them, I'm going away soon, and you're going to die in your sins. So a sober warning. There's three parts here. There's three parts. And, and all of them focus on the exclusivity of Jesus. First, you will seek me. And what I think Jesus is getting at is that there is no other Messiah. I don't think Jesus really means they're to be looking for Jesus. After Jesus is crucified and killed, they want to forget about him. They want to move on. What I think he means is they will continue looking for their Messiah. They've rejected their Messiah. He came to his own. His own people rejected him. But even to this day, the Jews are looking in vain for their Messiah to come when he has already come. It's tragic. There is no other Messiah. So I think what Jesus means here is, you'll look for me, you'll look for the one promised by God, and you will not find me. They're still looking in vain. The great hope is that one day, 
Mike read this morning from Isaiah 53, one day Israel will realize what have we done? Truly he was despised and we esteemed him not. One day, Zechariah 12.10 says, God will pour out his spirit upon them and they'll look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn. But until that day, they will keep searching in vain for a Messiah to come when the Messiah has already come. There is no other Messiah. You will seek me. Second, there is no other Savior. And you will die in your sin. Having rejected the one true Messiah, having rejected the one true prophet from God, like Moses, having rejected the Savior sent, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there is only one fate that anyone can have who rejects Christ, and that is to die in their sin. Notice the threat facing each and every one of us is ourselves. We, we live in a world that wants to blame other people when we're in danger, when bad things happen to us. Surely it's someone else's fault. But the threat facing every one of us and every Jew Jesus is talking to is self-caused. You will die in your sins and I face the threat of dying in my sins. What is the threat facing me? My sins. And the logic of this threat is that it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. And when you stand before God in judgment, you will be clothed in your sins. The worst possible... John, not John, sorry. Paul Washer says this, and he says it rightly. The worst possible news you can tell us sinful people is that God is good, that God is holy. The worst possible news you can tell sinful people is that God is good and holy because there's only one thing a good and holy God can do to a sinful people, pour out his wrath upon them. And again, this is Jesus' warning This isn't Paul only. This is the teaching of Scripture. But understand, there's no point calling yourself a Christian, calling yourself a follower of Christ, and rejecting the doctrine of judgment, God's wrath, and hell. Jesus is clear. The whole point of this warning is get it straight, you guys, you religious people, you people who've traveled. I mean, you can imagine the Jews. What are you talking about? We're very religious, and we're part of the true religion, and we've traveled a long journey to come celebrate this feast. How dare you tell us we will die in our sins? And three times, that's exactly what Jesus does. Because to a people who reject the Messiah and keep looking for another, they will die in their sins because there is no other Savior. Psalm 130, we sing a song based off of this, makes the point abundantly clear. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? See, Jesus does not assume that when we stand before God in our sins, God will say, well, you did your best. You made some mistakes. The, the implication is this is a dire warning. This, this is terrible news. This is straight from Jesus' lips three times. He, he gives one qualifier of escape, unless, we'll get to that. But understand, this is the fate of all mankind everywhere, unless the one qualification given by Jesus is of, taken advantage of. There's no other Messiah. There is no other Savior. Point three, there is no other way. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now we know Jesus is returning to the Father. He's returning to heaven and to glory. 
And the point is this, in rejecting him and in continuing to look for their Messiah, they will die in their sins. And because they will die in their sins, they will not go to heaven with the Father and with Jesus. They cannot go where he goes. Turn, turn to chapter 14. Jesus gives very different news to his disciples. He tells them he's going away, but he tells them, I'm going to come back and bring you to where I am. So this is the consequence. I'm going somewhere. You people who will die in your sins cannot go, which is to say they're going to hell. John 14, this is the good news. This is the contrast. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I... Um, if, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. That's, that's the good news of the gospel, that you can be where Jesus is. What he tells these people, if you die in your sins, you can't be where I am. Make, make no mistake, this is a warning about hell and judgment. Where I'm going, you cannot come because you will die in your sins and you will die in your sins because you reject Jesus and keep looking for a different savior, a different means of escape. There is only one, there is no other Messiah, there is no other savior and there is no other way. There is one exception to this equation and only one. All religions do not lead to God. There is no other savior, no other Messiah, no other way. And our Lord himself is the one who is most emphatic on this point. To the most religious people of his day, part of the true religion, he says this. How much more so to the pagans and the godless today? This is, we've, we've got to accept Jesus' assessment of ourselves apart from him. Jesus warns of his departure, his sober warning, there's no Messiah, there's no other Savior, there's no other way. And they respond with self-righteous ridicule. It's tragic. They respond with self-righteous ridicule when they say, will he kill himself? Will he kill himself? Earlier they thought he was saying he might go to the Greeks. I think to some degree they pick up what he's saying, but, but notice, they skip right over the warning, you will die in your sins. They're not interested in that. What do you mean? They skip right over that. And they, they, they focus instead on he's going somewhere we can't go. Well, I think the logic is they assume they're going to heaven. So he must be going to the other place. Maybe he's planning to kill himself. Notice the self-righteousness and the self-confidence in this response. There's not an iota of concern over the judgment. It's, I think, why he repeats it two more times later. Because they, they, don't, they don't care. They don't care. You're going somewhere we can't go? Well, we know where we're going. I mean, this becomes clear as this discussion develops. Turn, turn a little later in chapter 8. I'll, I'll show you why I, I say this. They ignore his warning, point one. Point two, they are confident in their own righteousness. Look at 8.33. 8.33. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say we'll become free? They're confident. They're not, they're not enslaved to sin. They're sons of Abraham. They're good to go. Look at 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. And then a little later in verse 41, you were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. Probably, word about Mary's 
virgin birth or Mary's pregnancy before her marriage had spread out and they're jabbing at Jesus, assuming he was born of fornication. But notice what they say instead. Not only are they fathers of Abraham, sons of Abraham, we have one father, even God. Now, there's a paternity dispute here. I'm going to look at that in the coming weeks when Jesus insists, no, God's not your father. Abraham's not your father. The devil's your father. He said to very religious people at the Feast of Booths, they are self-righteous. We're good to go. We're sons of Abraham. God's our father. We're here keeping the feast. We're the chosen people. We're circumcised. We're good to go. So in their self-righteousness, they assume we know where we're going. We know we're good. So if he's going somewhere we can't go, what are you going to do? Go kill yourself, get judged, go to hell? It's, it's scorn. It's contempt. They're not taking him seriously at all. Will he kill himself? Earlier, they thought maybe he's going to go to the Greeks. I mean, they are not taking him terribly seriously. They are confident in their own righteousness. Now, ultimately, they speak with a profound and unintentional irony. A profound and unintentional irony. Let me read a quote from D.A. Carson. This is almost certainly an ironic prophecy of Jesus' death akin to 11.49-50. In 11.49-50, Caiaphas, the high priest, says this because he's the high priest. Caiaphas, who is high priest, that you're said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that one should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Now, he doesn't understand the profound reality of what he's saying. This has got to be something similar to that Carson is saying. Jesus' opponents are wrong to think that he will achieve his departure by killing himself, yet unwittingly, they are nevertheless profoundly right, for he goes away by voluntarily laying down his life, not in suicide, but in submission to his father's will and a violent death meted out by his enemies. So we, the reader, understand that even as they mock Jesus, there's a profound irony to what they say. He won't kill himself, but he will lay down his life on our behalf. He will lay down his life on our behalf. So that's the first exchange. Jesus warns them and they respond to his warning with mockery, with Mockery. Let's go to point two then. Jesus insists on his transcendent identity. Jesus insists on his transcendent identity. Verse 23 to 25. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, there are two more times he tells them, you will die in your sins, but now he gives finally the escape clause, the exception. And what Jesus is doing here is insisting he is of a whole order and class different and superior than them. We must not think of Jesus as a great man merely, as a great teacher, a great prophet, as though there are many prophets and Jesus is the best. There are many men and Jesus is the best. No, his whole emphasis to these people, the chosen people, the set-apart people, is you're of this world, I'm not of this world. Notice the contrast. You're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. What is, what is Jesus getting at? I think he's simply making the distinction, you are worldlings. I don't think below means hell just means this world. Now, in John's gospel, this world is the evil world. So when we read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, 
We're not supposed to marvel at God's love because it's so big. There's so many people. The world's such a big place that God loves the world. Rather, the world's evil. That's the way it's framed in 319, right? This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. The concept of the world in John's gospel is the world that opposes, the world that rejects, the world that hates his light. They are of the world. He is not of this world. He's not in their class. He's not in their group. He says again, you are from below, I am from above. And and this language has been used already in John's gospel. In John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus, no one's ascended into heaven except the son who has descended. I'm come down from heaven. That's part of his emphasis. I'm not originally of this world. I'm from another world. I'm from heaven. I'm from the Father. He sent me. And so he makes it clear, no, I'm not one of you. But he'll, he'll make an even bolder claim in just a moment. Jesus is from above and is not of this world. And even as, get this, even as Jesus stands alongside of us as our great high priest, as our older brother, Romans 8 can use that language, Jesus always keeps the, the, sep, the wall of separation up. In John 20, after the resurrection, when he appears to Mary, he says this to her. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I'm not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, quote, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Because the father's fathership to Jesus is of a different sense than his fathership to us. So Jesus isn't comfortable saying, I'm going to our father. No, I'm going to your father and my father, to your God and my God. Because it means something a little different. When you say, does Jesus have a God? Yes, he does. Does Jesus have a father? Yes, he does. He's a little different than he means with us. He's of a different class. How much so? Keep working with me. Jesus will make it clear. Jesus will make it clear. Point B, not only is Jesus separate from and greater than all. That's point one. Jesus is separate from and greater than all. In fact, Jesus insists, you must believe that Jesus is God. You must believe that Jesus is God. And again, people will try to say Jesus never claimed to be God, which is ludicrous. Yes, it's true. If you type in your search engine with quotes, I am God, end quotes, search, you won't find Jesus saying that. Jesus does not say the words, I am God. Jesus claims divinity again and again and again. Probably nowhere clearer than in John 8. When we get to the end of John 8, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am There's no way anyone who knows their Bible can misunderstand what he's saying. But even here, it's clear. Even here, it is clear. After making it clear first, I'm of a different order, a different class. I am greater and separate from you. He ups the ante even further. And he says to them this, I told you, you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus begins by repeating the warning. I think this is because this is the important part, and this is the part they neglected. The part that should grab your attention, if you're not paying attention, is, well, what? I'm going to die in my... What? They, they pick up on, you're going somewhere we can't go. Well, we know where we're going, so you must be going to hell, so you're going to kill yourself. He brings them back to the real warning. The war- you guys don't get it. You're going to die in your sins. You don't understand the peril you're in. He repeats the warning. I told you you will die in your sins. And then he gives the escape. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die 
in your sins. So here we get to the, 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 the one means of escape. Every man, woman, and child who dies without believing, without meeting this condition, will die in their sins. That's what Jesus says. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. So what does that mean? This is what we need to take our time and be very, very clear on. What is this requirement? Notice it's absolute. Unless you believe that I am he. It's a clear and absolute requirement. So what is meant? Well, the first thing of interest is that you could translate this, and some people suggest what Jesus is doing here, is saying, unless you believe that I am. The Greek construction, ego me, has an implied pronoun. If you wanted to simply say I am, like Jesus does at the end in 58, it would be written the same, I am ego me. It can also legitimately translate it, I am he. It, has, it can have the implied pronoun. So it's possible that Jesus here is suggesting a reference to the divine name. It's possible. It's even, I think, likely he's starting to set it up. I don't think that's his most immediate referent. Given that we know where he's going, we know that at the end of chapter 8, he's going to make that claim clearly. I think he may be setting that up here. This is, this is what God said to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3, remember Moses is out in Midian tending sheep and goats, and he sees a bush that's burning but not consumed, and he approaches, and God says, take off your shoes for the ground you're on is holy. And after that exchange, Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is clearly what Jesus is referencing in verse 58. And some suggest that's what he's referencing here. I think he is in a manner of speaking. I think there's probably a closer grammatical connection building off of this. Turn, turn to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. The section of Isaiah 40 to 55 is a section um, devoted to God's promise of restoration and sending his Messiah and his suffering servant. And we see language like this repeatedly all over. I gave you the references. We'll just look at three of them in chapter 43, although there's many more. Where this expression, I am he, I am he, and there is no other, repeats. And I think Isaiah is building off of the revelation at the burning bush. I think, I think it's of one thread with that. God introduces himself fundamentally as being the self-existent one, the one who is. And then in Isaiah 43, that is built upon. And you can see this is all about being God delivering his people. I mean, just pick it up in verse one. But now, thus says the Lord who formed, who created you, O Israel, who Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Verse four, because you're precious in my eyes and honored, I will love you. Verse five, fear not, I am with you. Then verse 10, you are my witnesses, declared Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God, and henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And then look at, jump ahead to verse 
25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. There's many other references to this, but this language of I, I am he, and there is no one. This is God talking, claiming divinity. It's developing, I think, the language from the burning bush. And so what this means then is that Jesus is claiming, that's me. You must believe that I am, either I am directly to the burning bush or that language being developed in Isaiah, I think more likely, Jesus is claiming divinity. That those passages in Isaiah, I'll just read it again. Jesus is saying this, this refers to me. I am he. Before me, no God was formed. I am he. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. That's what Jesus is claiming. <laughs> Which means, point three, either he is God or this is blasphemy. There's, there's no third option. Good teachers don't make claims like this. Wise men don't make claims like this. It's either knowing blasphemy because he's a liar or he's self-deceived and he's a lunatic or he is who he claims to be. And Jesus has some more sharp edges than our culture wants to think. He speaks about heaven and hell. He speaks about sin and judgment and he makes bold, bold claims. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What that also means then is that the de- deity of Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, God himself, is a crucial teaching. When I, when I do classes sometimes, tough men classes, when we train the counselors at Camp Appanus, oftentimes I'll ask them to, to, do, to do an assignment. What is the irreducible gospel? What, this is probably a good exercise for each of us to consider, what truths are so important that to get them wrong places you outside of salvation? What is the minimum a person has to get right in their faith to be saved? And you might be surprised. There are some critically important teachings and truths that I don't think are necessarily essential for someone to be saved. As much as I believe and would fight for the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, I think a person could have confusion and not sure where they stand on that issue. C.S. Lewis certainly was. And be saved. I'm not saying it's an unimportant doctrine. I'm just saying I, I, I wouldn't say to someone, you aren't saved because you don't believe in the full plenary inspiration of the narrative of Scripture. But apparently the deity of Christ is one such teaching. Jesus makes it clear, unless you believe that I am he, and if you think I'm right in my understanding of what he's saying, and I think clearly by the end of this chapter, that's what he's saying. If you don't see it clearly here, we get there, absolutely. Then the deity of Christ is one of those teachings that is make or break, in or out. Which team are you playing for? This is why, despite all of our many agreements on many points with Mormonism, we view them as a cult and not a sect of Christianity. Why? They reject the deity of Christ. They think Jesus is the first and greatest created being of God, the brother of Satan, but he's God with the lowercase g. And then Jesus would say, okay, then you're going to die in your sins. Anybody who rejects the deity. The earliest church fights were over these issues. The Arianism, denying the deity of Christ, wanting to make Jesus just the greatest angel, the greatest person. No, Jesus is the one who insists. It's, it's God or it's nothing. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's an absolute claim. 
That is an absolute claim. The deity of Christ is absolutely essential for salvation in a way that I wouldn't even insist inerrancy is. And do I hold to inerrancy? Would I fight for inerrancy? Absolutely I would. The deity of Christ on Christ's own words is essential. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Next week we'll see the other piece of this. The, we, one of the ways I'll explain it is you have to believe in the person and work of Jesus. The person being he is the son of God, he is God. The work he does, he dies for our sins. And you'll see, look at verse 28 of chapter 8. We'll get there, God willing, next week. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. That's the other thing tied to this claim. You have to believe that I am He, and the Son of Man, the one who is God, will be lifted up and crucified. And there we have both pieces. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's either God or this is blasphemy. Very quickly before we go to communion. Now they are incredulous they still aren't really tracking with him. When they do track with him, they'll try to kill him in verse 59. When they fully get what he's saying, when it becomes clear, they, the time for talk will be over. And they say, who are you? Which I take to mean something like, just who do you think you are? They say something very much like that in verse 53 as this develops. Look at verse 53 of chapter 8. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? I take this, who are you, in a similar fashion. They're not fully tracking with him, but they get he's making some sort of big claim. Who who do you think you are? And all I want to pause here, just to stop in 25, is Jesus' constancy. Their incredulity and his constancy. Their incredulity and his constancy. So they said to him, who are you? And the the big point here, Jesus has been consistent in his claim to deity. Jesus has been consistent in his claim to deity. We see their incredulity in his constancy. He responds, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. And one of the things we get from Jesus in the other gospels is he'll oftentimes teach saying things like, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And as I look at Jesus' ministry in all four of the gospels, he teaches, and initially it's, it's subtle, Those with eyes to see and ears to hear, they get it. He uses the term son of man, which is kind of overt because it could just be a claim like Ezekiel the prophet, son of man, until towards the end of his ministry makes it clear, no, I mean Daniel 7, son of man. (gasps) And he's he's not clear because when he speaks plainly about being the son of God and Messiah, that's when they want to kill him. He's becoming more and more plain. We are six months before the crucifixion. Chapter 8 ends with them claiming he's committed blasphemy, trying to stone him. And kill him. And so he's becoming less and less vague. But his point is, even though he's becoming more and more clear, he's been saying the same thing the whole time. This isn't some new innovation on his part. And very briefly, I'll just point you to our Lord's claims in John's gospel. Again, getting it clear. Jesus claims to be God. He clearly claims to be God. In chapter 2, verse 19 in the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus declares he is the true temple of God where man and God meet. John three thirteen. he is the son of man who descended down from heaven. No one has ascended into heaven. That's the son. He has descended. In John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He is the only begotten son of God. In John four ten, with the woman at the well, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was talking to you, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. He is the gift of God. 
In John 5, 17 to 28, he is the son of the father who does everything he sees his father doing, to whom all judgment has been given, so that all may honor him, even as they honor the father. He is the one whose voice will raise the dead from the grave to the judgment of life and the judgment of death. In John 6, 25, he is the son of man prophesied in Daniel 7, 13. In 6, 41, he is the bread of life that came down from heaven. And a few days earlier at the Feast of Booths in John 7, 37 to 38, he is the one who gives living water. And then most recently, he is the light of the world. Jesus has been consistent in his claim. He has been consistent in his claim. And so as we prepare to take communion, I would just challenge you, have you resolved this issue? And understand it is non-negotiable. Jesus invites all. All can come. But what there is no negotiating on is the terms. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is what is true. You are invited to put your faith and trust in the divine son of God who was lifted up on our behalf, who gave himself up as a ransom so that you would not have to die in your sins. The only hope you and I have of not dying in our sins is that Jesus died for our sins and in our sins on the cross. That's it. And that is what we celebrate in the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent your son, that you have sent a sacrifice, an atoning guilt offering that we might escape the terrible fate of dying in our sins. Lord, help us settle once and for all. There is no other avenue of escape. There is no other Messiah, no other Savior, no other way to you. And let us flee to the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.